Um, well, my name is Paul Wooding. What I do um, as fundamentally try to nail what I do in a single sentence, it would be I create successful teams. Okay. That's been my life journey right. of creating teams and uh, helping them to become successful. And of course, it's not me necessarily. It's the people that are in the team yeah, that yeah. make the outcome successful. So fundamentally, I create successful teams. That's going to be an interesting tagline for me to put, isn't it? <laughs> Paul Wooding creates successful teams. I've hit record now because we've started chatting about something really interesting. Oh, okay, sorry. Because <laughs> yeah. rather than get to that and then go, well, let's go back and talk about it. We might as well just crack on. Um, sure. So let's go back to you own an E-Type. Yep. I didn't know you owned an E-Type, so now I'm intrigued. Oh, uh, right. And this episode will go out before the William Haynes episode. Oh, nice. So this will lead nicely. So next episode, I'll be talking to someone who restores E-Types. But today, I'm talking to someone who owns an E-Type, amongst other things. Um, so... Paul, what do you? What was your E-type story that we already started, and then we need to pick back up? So you have a series two. Yep. And in your study, you have. I've had a shelf, shelf of cars. Right. Okay. And that shelf of cars I've had for a long time. Right. I can't think how long, to be honest. They've possibly, you know, it's grown and developed. Yeah. But you sort of go through life with an ambition or a vision of working in a study that's got, you know, all of the things that, that are important dream to you about and dream about, yeah. and anything you aspire to. And over, over time, I've eventually ended up with this, you know, Ikea cabinet, yeah. you know, just a bunch of shelves. And on that shelves, it's got um, sort of four compartments. And one of those shelves, it's got red cars on it. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing. They're just red cars. Red. And then I've got another one which has got grey cars, of all things. And then I've got another shelf which has got um, sort of sports cars of a mixed-up range. Yeah. Anyway, on that red shelf, it just so happens that there was a red E-Type, there was an MGA, well, there still is an MGA, a red TVR Tuscan, and a Corvette uh, 58, 1958 Corvette, which is quite critical it's a 58 it can be a 50 58 on with a quad headlight yes and also with the exhausts that come out through the bumpers yeah um and i think that was only in the 58 59 period I, i'm not a complete aficionado on them it's just one of those things i saw as a young kid and went oh, i love that. that's the one that's yeah. the one love that um so that shelf of red cars has started to become a reality with the MGA as the first one, <laughs> which was my first foray into classic cars, if you like. Yeah. And that's got a story behind it. And then there was a red E-Type, which just, uh, one of those cars you've just always wanted. Um, and so that was a, a mission that you end up in a scenario where you're going, actually, the business case to the family, you know, these investments, yeah, by the yeah. way. I can justify <laughs> this because it'll be inheritance exactly. and it'll be worth money in the future. Exactly. Like um, so, yes, that's how I ended up with a, with a red E-type after searching around. And uh, How have you found out. having an E-type? Oh, there was a point at which, possibly only a year ago, where I was thinking, I'm struggling to justify any more cars <laughs> and I really want a classic race car. I'd love to, you know do the Silverstone Festival and I got very close to doing it last year but didn't quite make it so in my head it was like 
and possibly more in my head, more in my wife's, you can't have another car. <laughs> if you're going to get one, it's, you know, one in, one out. Oh, you're at the one in, one out stage. Oh. So that, um, so the Red E type was the one which I found possibly the least connected to of the cars. Right. Um, so I was thinking, yeah, maybe I should, you know, swap them over and the value would be sort of similar value, so it would be the right sort of thing. Yeah. I then ended up um, popping down to Margate, which... Given we're in Buckinghamshire, is a bit of a troop down mm. to Margate, and uh, it was to meet Simon down at Scale Electrics, who are st- headquartered back down there. Yeah, and yeah. I decided it was a lovely day. I'll take the E-Type. Anyway, <laughs> the idea of ever letting that E-Type go all <laughs> of a sudden just transformed. That again. journey really made you aware of the E-Type's capabilities, didn't you? It's it is a delight. It's I a uh, so I've recorded with William next week so I, I know what is and what isn't in the episode and off microphone we were chatting about his he was doing um just a sunday morning shakedown take it for a, take one of the car customer cars for a just to make sure nothing fell off and everything was tight and as it should be he's like it's five o'clock in the morning on a sunday the quietest time to ever drive like when i lived in south end and before the ulez was 24 7 or before the congestion charge was 24 7 I'd go across to Wimbledon or to Chiswick for car things and I'd set off at six in the morning and drive through central London, like just straight through because it was dead. It was completely... And that was such a nice experience to go, I know how busy this place is and for it to be completely empty makes such a big difference to how you experience that drive. Like doing 20 mile an hour with the windows down, just taking it, soaking it all in. And he said he was on these back lanes and the Cotswolds and he came across a Golf GTI <laughs> and the Golf could not keep up with the E-Type. Like, they would, do, as you do when you're having a spirit drive, have a bit, of, a bit of a play and he'd get onto a bit of a straight and just leave this Golf behind. And eventually they got to a petrol station and the Golf pulled and he was like, what have you done to this car? And he's like, it's completely standard. Yeah, as it came, it's this good of a car. Yeah. And people do not appreciate that about them until you have a go in one and you go... This is a great car. <laughs> I wonder why they sold really well. <laughs> they are a joy to drive. It's fantastic. And I, I'm not that well-versed in the car world, despite what people may think. So I, am, I take all of these experiences and conversations as like I learn so much. Because I, I'm one of those that I like cars. and I've grown up liking cars. And I would read the supercar book and learn all the 0-60 times and stuff like that. But a lot of the car world is so much deeper than that, and the histories and the experiences are so much more like yeah. enriching. Yeah. And it's been a real pleasure in the last, well, three, nearly four years, just to be like a lot more a part of it and go, yeah. oh, there's so much more to this than just what, what car do you drive, how fast does it go, and which car is the most fun to go through. It's the stories and the community and the connections and the history is so much more than most people would really understand. And, you know, the thing that is so fantastic about, you know, what you're doing, you know, in that podcast conversation is, mm. you know, I've spent, you know, hours commuting backwards and forwards listening to your, your entire series of podcasts. People, yeah. <laughs> so it's great. I get a real nice, easy way to sit down with interesting people for an hour. That it's quite hard to do otherwise, unless yeah. you go to the pub and have a, a chin wag. Yeah. Whereas I can go to interesting people that I know have interesting stories and go, we sit and chat for an hour. I'll just put some microphones on and we can record it. And it's a podcast then. Because <laughs> I'm not here doing it properly. I've not got a, a list of questions and an interview. It's Let's have a chat and we'll yeah. try and keep it as authentic as possible. 
Um, so it might be worth mentioning who you are and what you do. Um, so <laughs> matter what I do. Who are you and what do you do? Um, well, my name's Paul Wooding. What I do um, as fundamentally try to nail what I do in a single sentence, it would be I create successful teams. Okay. That's been my life journey right. of creating teams and uh, helping them to become successful. And, of course, it's not me necessarily. It's the people that are in the team yeah, that yeah. make the outcome successful. So, fundamentally, I create successful teams. That's going to be an interesting tagline for me to put, isn't it? <laughs> Paul Wooding creates successful teams. It's not quite the same as motorsport engineer or uh, Jaguar restorer, <laughs> team maker. <laughs> So your connection to the car world isn't as direct as some of the guests where it's like this person is on the telly for their automotive stuff or they are in the automotive industry in that way. But our paths cross quite frequently within the automotive world and I know you've got a lot of interesting stories and experiences. I think that the main fundamental connector is Mission Motorsport for us too. Exactly. Um, and if anyone's seen the, the Cloudera GT86s, I've photographed them, we're doing a T-shirt of them, the Airfix kit style... That's all thanks to you. That's where that all came together. So it's Cloudera that you work for now, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. So um, for the last 24 years, I've been a sales director uh, working with West Coast, fundamentally West Coast American companies, mm-hmm. um, selling everything from hardware, computer systems, through to currently big data software systems. So right. that's, um, that's the sales element. Um, but again, that's not me selling. That's me fundamentally creating, creating teams, teams that go out and yeah, become yeah. successful. Well, it's fun because we've chatted very briefly beforehand. I, I share quite a lot of relatively personal stuff in my chats with people. And how I was saying that the thing that I struggled with most when I worked in sales was the management. And the way that it was approached was, you have to hit these numbers. And that never worked to motivate me, because I'm not motivated by that. The money and the financial side of things isn't what keeps me interested in what I'm up to. It's a nice thing to have, and it helps fund doing things, but it's not the motivator. And it was always interesting to try and convey that to management, go, you need to find an alternative way for me to work with you. Because if, you, if we can crack the code... Yeah. I'll be your best guy because I'm, I'm enthused and I'm interested. And I think a huge amount of management is more about interpersonal skills than anything else and understanding Completely. how people function. Completely. And I imagine that's been a journey for you to learn, hasn't it? Um, well, You're like, no, I'm just a psychologist, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's the classic sort of process of, you know, consciously incompetent through to, you know, unconscious competence. Yeah. And it's at what point do I get to a part of my life where all of a sudden I'm finding whatever I tend to get involved in and uh, organise or lead mm. has a successful outcome. And you sort of go, okay, well, what have I done in that specific team environment or whatever it might be? You know, where am I learning? Why, why is that working? How do I repeat it? And again, back to your point of the corporate numbers game of quarterly driven output based yeah. activities how do you drive that consistently you know and the current company seven years consistently overachieving uh, look you know the largest part of our business in europe is driven by the team of sales guys i've got yeah and that i've sort of just about got to a point in my career as i'd well, say coming towards the, the end of my career where i've gone <laughs> ah I'm starting to understand why I've yeah. been able to do these things through that year. But it sort of stems from joining the army at 17 years of age, 20-year career there. Um, 
and effectively within two years finding myself in a position of management as right. a lance corporal you know promoted into that you've got a detachment you know a detachment of eight guys as it was there and that was a team that i would take around and back then it was actually um a fascinating job it was called um regimental information team and right. our job was to actually go around schools and you know, explain to schools what the Royal Signals was all about, yeah. and try and encourage people to come and join the join the army. Hopefully, Royal Signals. So, and that was a team of people that was again one of those jobs that I had people wanting to be a part of the detachment. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah it's a good job to go and do. Oh, yeah, it's going to do they that. Do that's that well. Good, yeah, yeah, it's going to. And then we'd travel the south of the country, going to various typically six forms, yeah. um, and going in and talking to. You weren't trying to go. Form. Oh, we're doing paintball. Why don't you come along and we'll, we'll show you what paintball's <laughs> like? Um, I've just realised that one of these microphones, which I think is my one, the battery is a little bit low, and I've had it twice where batteries have died, and I haven't realised for a minute and gone, oh crap! Oh, no, I'm going to make a load of work for myself, so I'm going to try and prevent that and plug this one in it was funny listening i think it was the um, might have been the ralph or one of the podcasts where your microphone disappeared off in the thing and you're thinking oh, i wonder whereabouts they are where you yeah. know all of a sudden that's gone really echoey it was with caesar um, that was it yes caesar pieri at gasoline juice that was it. his mic was on and mine just vanished and i was uh, like oh crap i've got the <laughs> audio for me so i had to trim it down a little bit to try and minimize that um, what also happened in that one is his car was being worked on outside oh right which i hadn't realized i saw the bonnet up and a light on it and i was like oh he must have been working on it and it wasn't it was a specialist working on it so i had to pause because they just walked in Jesus, <laughs> your car's fit <laughs> I'm like, oh crap um so that's one of the only episodes that has any sort of editing and it's normally because of my own incompetence <laughs> it happened with paul cowland as well i just that was a fabulous podcast. Paul's a really good guy to that sit and chat with. That was fabulous. I've got so much time from, and he's been one that has like really welcomed me as a new person into the automotive yeah. world. So yeah. it's been it's been really pleasant to spend time around him, and yeah. I've got a lot of well respect and time for Paul. Yeah. Um, because it, it's quite daunting trying to step into an, a world that you don't necessarily know, and I kind of naively wondering going, well I like cars this will be fine I'll just talk about cars to people and we'll just go from there and then you start to learn that the industry is a little bit more complex than just these people like cars yeah that is the fundamental connecting factor yeah. and that's what brings us all together is our, our love of the automotive but you go right actually <laughs> this is an actual industry with its own nuance and its own way of working and being a bit cheeky and a bit confident can get you so far, but you have to learn some of the ins and outs to unlock certain doors. And that's that's been quite fun at the same time because I've not quite got a big stake in the game. Yeah. My amount to lose is very small. Yeah. So I can get away with being a bit cheeky. I can get away with going, oh, what's the worst that can happen? Because I've not got people's lives depending on me. I've not got staff or anything like that. I can go, mm-hmm. if I upset someone, I can apologise if I cause a problem, I can just go, well, I won't come back. I'm really sorry. Um, which is, is a fun way to approach things. And a lot of people don't realise how far that can get you. Well, that's an element of, you know, 
I've, I've always uh, likened it to a no fear of failure. Mm. You know, if you fear failure, then you're likely to avoid getting yourself into those sorts of situations. Yeah. And back to your thing, what are the consequences? And it's an interesting, you know, balance between, you know, we spoke about mission motorsport and the military and what 20 years of working in that environment gives you mm. when you walk into corporate world. Back to your point about, you know, the most important thing that a you know lifetime salespersons have to worry about is a quota yeah you know are they even worried about what they are selling maybe maybe not so there may not be that level of conscience but the criticality of their decisions are typically bottom lines and revenues which yeah. you know in contrast 20 years of making decisions that typically have consequentials that could lead to loss of life those become far more uh, leveling so yeah, therefore yeah. you're able to soak up an awful lot more of the critical you know chap saying why aren't you going to deliver xyz this thing well i've got a very good reason why i'm not going to do that these are what we're going to achieve and by the way the output is going to be a 12 month output not this week or next week and it's also going to have the interest of the customer at heart as to how we're going to achieve those outcomes so you know be patient we'll get there calm down you know nobody's dying over this but you might be losing a reputation because you've said you've promised something that you can't deliver well you know suggest you might want to think again about yeah, how next time that. don't promise that bit Correct. we'll figure it out from there exactly. but I, I've had this a couple of times in conversations with that once your worst case scenario isn't as extreme as it could be and you've lived through the extreme worst case scenario it really does change the perspective on things yeah. and I've used it in job interviews yeah. when I went into sales from working in the hospitals one of the questions inevitably is always how do you deal with rejection and it, my answer is always, well, all they can say is no. Yeah. That's the worst that can happen is I get a no and I have to go and find someone else to buy whatever I'm trying to sell. Yeah. And if you can manage that, it's a lot easier to manage a no than it is, this person might die if I don't do my job properly. Yeah. And being in the environment where it's like, this situation has gone very south and we have to manage a very severe s- scenario or someone can get either really badly hurt or worse... Once you've lived through that bit, well, the other stuff's quite easy because you go, exactly. well, that bit's not going to happen. Yeah. So what's the worst going to happen? <laughs> we just try something else. We start something afresh. Like, How bad could it be? Yeah. And if the <laughs> outcome is not you die, someone else dies, you can probably manage it. Yeah. It'll be all right. We'll yeah. figure this out. Uh. And it's a really valuable thing to kind of carry with you through life because yeah. it, it, it is very confidence inspiring because yeah. yeah. you... You aren't scared as much. Exactly. And exactly. similar with, with military experience, you're going to go, well, I'm, I'm not scared of you, so I'm going to be a little bit more confident about things because you can't affect me in the way that you think you might. Yeah. And it, it possibly comes back from a, there's quite a lot of routine, obviously, in the forces world. There's quite a lot of you know, discipline in process and hierarchical aspects. So respect is always there. Yeah. But you know, respect is earned typically, you know, it, even hierarchically, you're still not necessarily, you know, you, you're polite and all the rest of it. Whereas in a sales environment, you do tend to find people um, struggle yeah. to work out what the equilibrium is. Where do I sit in the pecking order? How do I balance myself here? And therefore, you come back to, well, treat everybody as a human, treat everybody with respect, you know. Yeah, yeah. We are just here for a very short time, so, you know, let's try and get on. I, I imagine the hierarchy scenario is a really difficult one for people that, like myself, aren't used to having a forced hierarchy. I would find that a real challenge because I would guess that you encounter people that pull rank a lot because they're of a certain rank. 
and it's a challenge when you don't believe their decision is correct to kind of have to go oh, I've got to bite my lip and yeah. not fight yeah. against this and I imagine yeah. there's a, a big especially when you're new to the military there's a real steep learning curve for that stuff where you go oh if I back chat this person it very negatively <laughs> affects me in that, quite possibly a physical manner as well as a career and all that sort of stuff it's like yeah there's, a, there's an amazing um, aspect of the transition just going the other way mm. so having had 20 years of that military hierarchical environment and then stepping into a civilian world yeah. and looking at you know what does this hierarchy look like and how do you get on that is a big challenge for military people who have lived in hierarchical system because you're going I don't know who the boss is here nobody's wearing nobody's the rank nobody on the yeah, exactly you don't know yeah. so you have to work everything out to try and understand okay what's the relative and again, those networks in the civilian world, it's not necessarily, you know, the most senior person who is the person you need to influence to get a decision done. Yeah. They could be the expert sat down here who's, you know, the person that the boss relates to. So that conversation becomes a very rich tapestry. But going back to that point about how do you sort of get into that disciplined environment and how do you survive in it? Um, uh, it's a good question because... If I look back to when I joined um, up in Catterick all those years ago, the people I was, you know, rooming with as new recruits, yeah. you know, 50% of them could have been in prison. Right. You know? Some of them could have been in the Lords. You know? So you weren't the nail that stuck out the furthest then. <laughs> exactly. But you were all a bit of that melting pot yeah. where it was quite obvious that the corporal who was the barrack room corporal, he was the person in charge. And it was made very clear as you walk through the door, right, here's the... Is the way it's structured. Yeah. So you sort of all sort of go along with this together. And yes, you're right, as you go through that career, you will come across people who, you know, they are dickheads, whether they were in a uniform or not. Yeah, yeah. And they have achieved what they have achieved and their rank and will come up with, you know, things that you think are just nonsense. Yeah. And in that environment, you sort of, you know, they very quickly work out, well, do you know what? You know, surprise, surprise, the orders that you're giving us, we may not be carrying them out in the way that you thought they were. <laughs> and that's something that is, again, back to that successful teaming thing. Yeah. The good leaders, the inspirational leaders, the ones that people wanted to be followed, you know, they're typically thinking through something called mission command. And that's exactly the same as in civilian world that I relate to, which is an empowerment. Right. So where you're empowered. And that's what mission command's all about. Generals have decided that's where we need to get to. These are the objectives. Individuals broken down into their various subunits to then go and achieve that objective. They'll be given boundaries, but within those boundaries, it's up to them to work out how do they achieve that with the best effect. And that's pretty much the same that I live in the corporate world where I'm fundamentally saying these are the outcomes that we need. That's the outputs. Those are the goals. How we get from there to there, it's about, you know, recruiting the best people with the best experience, best relationships to then go and achieve that. And that, in both sides, always seems to me to be a fairly simple process of hiring good people, creating the environment for them to get on, support each other, not try and pitch them against each other, which is often a classic sort of sales mentality to have a... Yeah, who's the biggest shark Exactly, exactly. It's weird. I I feel like that mentality only speaks to psychopaths. (laughs) When you look at kind of like Wall Street and stuff like that, and anybody goes in and they come back out and they go, they're just, they're all psychopaths. It's wild. (laughs) Like they would all score really highly on the psychopath test. And if they weren't in this environment, they'd probably be in prison. 
because that fundamental way that they function either goes really well in sales or it goes really badly in the normal world. <laughs> and it's so bizarre when you you think that it's not a big leap between someone that's a psychopath in the traditional sense yeah. and a CEO or something like that. They exactly. use the same functions to get what they want because it's like manipulation and deceptiveness yeah. and yeah. lack of empathy and stuff like that. In one aspect, it's really good for working your way up a hard corporate ladder. Yeah. And in the other aspect, it's, it's really good for committing horrible crimes. <laughs> um, and there was some... Funnily enough, there was a... Uh, piece of volunt- well, it was a voluntary stuff, but it was a um, company called Savile Holdsworth Limited, right. SHL. Um, I don't know if I don't think they're still around, but anyway, they were a very large um, HR company, and um, uh, a half colonel who had retired. He was a gunner, and he'd created something called Gunners in Business. That's still going, and I, and he's still around. And effectively, he'd set up a network for people transitioning out of the services into civilian world. And he was offering advice of, you know, come and join this club. And we met at the Liberal Club of all places in London um, once a month. And um, we'd all chat about, you know, what you're doing, how you're getting out. Have you got any network connections, etc.? Yeah. And he made this offer of go to Savile Holdsworth as a volunteer, as a guinea pig for HR people to practice interviewing um, people for the candidate. So you were there as a, you know, as a part of the training process. Yeah. In that process, they did something called occupational questionnaires, OPQs, and something else, I can't remember what it was, and they put you through their whole series of questionnaires. And within that, it actually helped to break down typical job types yeah. and then the characteristics that you're most suited to. So as an officer in the army, sort of leaving after 20 years, then, you know, my questionnaireing, which was, this is the type of character you are, yeah, and yeah. that's what you are. And fortunately, as a part of the question and the outcome, it was saying, oh, yeah, you are suited to being, you know, an officer in the army. Mm. OK, fine. Actually, it was just a HM forces officer, I think. Um, and then there was other things that you were suited to. But coincidentally, in that very same group was... Sales manager, sales director. Yeah, yeah. Same characteristics, same sort of environment. Different application. Exactly. And it was fascinating. I'd love to go back, actually, and look at some of the other jobs we were in there. Yeah, yeah. But it was quite interesting that that process sort of had those, to your point, you know, psychopaths. I suspect, I wonder if Yeah, yeah, there's a circle on the far (laughs) end where it's like really good CEO or psychopath, and they're just in their own little... Oh, James Cameron is interrupting another episode. Of oh, the there you go. You are interrupting again. <laughs> it's not in a head, is it? Uh, no. no. I haven't driven it, though. Oh, you let your teenage son drive it, did you? Yeah. <laughs> go and jump in someone else's car and hopefully nothing. It needs a new wheel bearing and potentially something on the suspension, so well, I'll blame I mean, that on you now. We've only done a couple of quick laps. So, uh, Took it up to the test track, got me banned from Bista. Good to see you, James. Right. Take care. See you tomorrow, see you tomorrow. Um, no, I was James has borrowed my car to move it out of the way so he can park his car. That's what that noise was, was him sliding the keys back across the table. Um, it's just fun that there's now a reoccurring theme to this podcast where exactly. James Cameron just interrupts every so often. Well, there's an inspirational leader. You yeah. know, and there's a character... Um, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying it, you know, like all of us, we've got our demons and our foibles and our characteristics, but there is something about, you know, the individuals yeah. that just lend themselves to people who want to come and help them. However, you might want to characterise that, but you sort of 
go out of your way to go, yeah, that's a good man yeah, you know, yeah. or a good woman. How can I help them? You know, and it's like, yeah, as long as you can sort of, you know, where it's that capacity. And uh, he's just one such guy that, you know. Yeah, I, I find a lot of people that have encountered him have always gone, oh, I've got a lot of time for James. Yeah. Like he's, he's a guy that's really inspiring and pretty genuine. Like yeah. I've not encountered someone that goes, oh, he's a sneaky one. He's always been, yeah, he says it how it is. Yeah. Some people might not agree with most of his opinions, but his opinions aren't based in... Um, prejudice or judgment in any manner it's just I think that's stupid and he'll say that he thinks that's stupid like it's quite interesting to see him encounter like interacting especially on like Twitter and things like that yes where the rules of society are a little bit different and you encounter some of the stuff that he it's like oh James you're not going to like how many people jump on this because in a normal situation completely like normal way to approach a conversation but on Twitter it's a different world and people do not react the same way he um, he made a comment on a, a photo of a couple sat on a bus talking about how they'd changed their life and how they'd you know got rid of cars yeah. and they no longer had cars and they've it hasn't changed their life one bit that they're now travelling around on public transport and of course James is street you know, oh just go away you know this <laughs> publication shouldn't be outside of you know city or metro yeah. it's a London only city based answer it doesn't account for all of the other types yeah, yeah. of issues so but it did just make me laugh where he just comes go out and goes away. rubbish yeah. <laughs> go away it's brilliant like so when I went to record with him it was at the Mission Motorsport um, HQ yep which is in the middle of nowhere down in Wantage yeah, no, and that's like, surrounded in water at this very moment in time I can imagine yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's one of those like if you had to get there on the bus it would take you three business days because it is in there's nothing nearby correct and yeah. I was on the way down and the road surface changed but it was like in a random spot yeah and I had, I had to put I was like, it feels like a wheel bearing's going. <laughs> I was like, I'm sure I've only just changed one. Oh, um, yeah, it's ideally suited because it's um, it's in what uh, uh, an old chap that um, instructed us, you would have said that it's ideal tank country. Right. So that whole wantage area <laughs> yeah. is just wonderful. It's almost like a soldier plane environment. But if you ever drive into wantage from any direction, you're typically coming over a crest and looking yeah. at a wonderful plane and beautiful landscape. But uh, in James's world, it would be so termed as this is ideal tank country. Which is perfect for him because he <laughs> exactly. is a tank slider, isn't he? He is. Um, he is. So uh, on the, the transition from military to civilian life you've gotten quite heavily involved with mission motorsport haven't you yeah i think um you know 20 years of um doing what you're told largely and working things out in the military seeing some pretty horrendous stuff coming out the other end of it you know unscathed physically you sort of go you know I'm lucky mm. and arguably in the tenure that I was there sort of 1980 to 2000 those 20 years about maybe one percent of the time was spent on operations yeah. in contrast post you know the Gulf War 2000 onwards with mm. Afghanistan and all the other things you know the number of tours that people were actually exposed to you know far greater you know, than it was during my time my operational tours included Bosnia and Ireland and that was it so mm. albeit Ireland was a two-year tour so it was a, uh, a fairly intensive um, time. You could speak the language at least. <laughs> yeah exactly and 
that was that was was it helpful yes it was helpful very much so but that scenario you come out the other side um and first you're getting your head around okay i need to make myself successful or i need to find myself into whatever and uh, my last job was what's known as operational requirements sat in whitehall specifying what the army's requirements were for the next 20 years right trying to spell out to it companies you know an it strategy that would be for the next 20 years nonsense in a way because mm. technology was moving at such a pace that whatever you thought you needed now would be out in of 20 day. years it was way out of the time wasn't it exactly is that um i can't know what the the name of it is but the way technology advances it's got a specific scale name. there's moore's law i think it might be moore's law so from a performance compute performance then you've got a doubling of capacity at a halving of cost yeah as it goes through now that's you know again that's an interesting reality myth whatever you want to call it but performance <laughs> does go on because then couple that to a sales world you say well IT should be surely getting cheaper to the point that it's just a commodity. And of course, yeah, yeah. you look at the IT world and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. Especially with how much everything uses computers now. Absolutely. And how much is online and yep. how much data that needs to be stored somewhere. And yep. There's a lot of stuff dedicated to ones and zeros that probably was quite hard to predict 20 years ago. Massively. And the and again, you're working in a... Um, a worst case scenario back back to that you know how bad could it be yeah. well there may not be any electricity there may not be any communication may not be any of these things so whatever you design your operations around you need to be able to operate in that environment yeah so one of the um environments sorry i might slight digress from the question but um within bosnia within that environment um you know we went back in as initially as the UN peacekeeping force. Right. That was the place we went into. And with I was in the logistics at that time. And from the Gulf War, the initial Gulf War, um, we'd been learning lessons again in that war that we'd forgotten from the 1940s in terms of how we operated in North Africa and how the desert yeah. was operated. And so the equipment that was designed to work in that environment, you know, had lost some of the things that we'd learnt as lessons. And one of those was the rate at which we would resupply um, artillery pieces with ammunition. And effectively, logistics had moved from using things like, and it was interesting listening to Ralph, stalwart vehicles, which were an amphibious six-wheel vehicle. They were effectively an ammo resupply vehicle that it would be able to get to wherever a tracked vehicle could get to in order to resupply with with ammunition. And that could be anything like the Abbott self-propelled artillery gun, for example. So you'd need to be able to get close enough to then resupply but maybe not to be in in an unarmored space. But to do that, the stalwart would have its own crane and it would offload the racks. So that's one environment. And as you go down through that logistic tail that comes all the way back to the UK where you've got your ammunition, you've got to make sure you've got a way of getting all that ammunition moved forward. Yeah. And you've typically got escalating capabilities of vehicles that have got you know less road ability, more off-road ability. But in the Gulf War, where it was like a 600-kilometre resupply route, that was a huge distance over which you'd have to get this ammunition forward as quickly as possible. And we developed um, a product uh, a system called Drops, which is... Um, demountable rack offloading platform system was the name of it. Um, that Those had, words were put together just to make drops of correct. Acronym, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that is effectively a skip lorry, for want of right. a better word, built by um, 
I think Leyland Daff or Daff had some, and there was also the uh, um, the eight wheel. Um, fully mo- fully off wheel. The artillery had some, which were eight wheel and uh, all drive. And the um, logistics ran about fifteen hundred of these six wheel equivalents. Anyway, those vehicles, as they'd gone through their procurement process, had had cost becomes an issue. So they'd taken out the command and control system, i.e., the communications ability to talk to these things. Right. So you had all these trucks going backwards and forwards along these resupply routes, trying to go then go and find the um, drop points, and they've lost you know the communication. They'd find their navigation; they wouldn't get there. So all of these were compromises through cost that had been taken out, which is a challenge. Roll forward into Bosnia. We've got the same vehicles that we've got big containers on of equipment, and we're trying to get um, aid support to areas of uh, across the area. And again, we're lacking communications and navigation in these systems that were meant to be able to overcome this idea of 16 tonnes of ammunition can be dropped off within a minute and moved on, in compared to here's a stalwart that would take a long time to get somewhere and it could only deliver six or eight tonnes of drop-off. If you wanted something else, then you'd go to a 16-tonne vehicle, but you'd have to have a forklift go along with it in right. order to actually get it off. You know, these were impractical, but they were the limitations. So this drops vehicle that we got, without its communication, was trying to navigate. And it largely had to go in convoys. It couldn't be left to do its own thing. It would need to be within a convoy. Lost. Exactly. <laughs> so that's what we were creating. And the project that I'd um, picked up, and this kind of ties a couple of things back together, was all about providing the communication and control system back into that drops vehicle. And that was called Log Tracks Logistic Tracking System. Yeah. And that was effectively, uh, because it was United Nations, it had IMARSAT Standard C, which is a data-only communication channel. It effectively pings up to the satellite, back to the goon hilly as it was, and then it connects to the normal telephony system. And we had a um, laptop, built some software that was able to find a the GPS location of the vehicle, but it would also have some elementary communication with this mobile data terminal right. that was inside it. And all of that was all designed <laughs> back to that point of going, ah, okay, um, you know, you've, you've, you've bought something back to your point about how do you work out what do you need yeah. for, you know, 20 years, yeah, what yeah. that platform is. And even when you do, you still end up with people going, oh, we can't afford that, so we'll take, we'll take that, that but we'll let it. So my life it's in... It's a life of frustration. <laughs> but you know what? That point of my career, it was about 16 years I'd been in by then, that job of... Um, designing and developing a combination of hardware components with software components. And I say designing, you know, scoping that and then tasking various suppliers to provide that capability. That was effectively what I'd asked as a job yeah. when I joined in, uh, in 1980, when they'd said, oh, what would you like to do? Yeah, I said, yeah. oh, I want to join the army. I want to design stuff that ultimately gets used in combat. That's what I want to do. Oh, no, we don't have any jobs like that. We've got draftsmen and we've got Remy and we've got yeah, this. It's not an off-the-shelf job for Yeah, you. there's no job like that. Like, oh, okay. So uh, anyway, so that's, um, that was an interesting and possibly the pinnacle of my yeah. time in the forces was Do you think that, that was a bit of making your own destiny that you ended up there? Um, yeah, I think the, the creating those jobs and, again, succeeding in jobs with teams is very much when you create something and then see what the 
output is that's required and then working up actually this is how we could do it yeah i could just as easily have stepped completely out of that and just given it to a contractor to say you know i need you to do this yeah yeah whereas it's like no we can do a lot of this by just doing it internally and driving some particular things so yes you're absolutely right there's a level of interest that yeah because it's a question that i have chatted about in various ways with various people because a a really good friend of mine is always like how do you end up in the maddest situations all the time (laughs) um i don't know if i told the full story recently or not but the one that comes to mind first is being in the passenger seat of an alpha spider driven by an Italian man yeah. around the, a village in Naples. Lovely. I sent a video to my mate. He went, you're the only person I know that can do that. <laughs> you go to a country where you don't speak the language and end up in the getting a tour in an old alpha. And it's this idea of if you kind of seek things that you're interested in and you're not scared to try things that you don't know about, exactly, it often ends up in interesting places because... Yeah it's or it kind of feels random but it's not quite random because you almost subconsciously headed in that way yeah and it, it feels very similar to like what you were just saying about how that job didn't exist but you've kind of leaned into your interests and seen where they'd taken you and you've ended up with the thing that you wanted to do from the get-go because you went i'm interested in this let's follow that let's pull that thread and let's pull it a bit more and we'll keep pulling the threads until we hit something solid and here we are, we're in the job that I wanted to do all along that they said didn't exist. And it's interesting, you were sort of talking at the front then about how you arrive in what this conversation has come from is a, a love of automotive, yeah. you know, and from the car world. You know, when I applied to join the army, my vision was I wanted to join, become a vehicle mechanic in the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers, do my minimum term of six years, so they'd train me for a year to be a vehicle mechanic. You'd then have to be signed in for six years. I'd then leave at six years and go and set up my own um, garage workshop. Yeah. That was my vision as a 16-year-old going into the recruiting office in Colchester. What can I leverage this situation for? How much is it going to cost me? Six years? I'll, I can pay six years. There exactly. <laughs> so the colour sergeant who sat in front of me, who's gone through and I've done these tests and what have you, and then he's asked me, and he said, so when I described that to him, he said, well, we don't want people like you. We want people who are coming to join the army in 22 years. You're here to serve Queen and Country. We need you to do this. Yeah. He said, so you're not really the type of person we want. And I went, oh. He said, anyway, you've passed all these tests, yeah. so I'm going to send we'll you off. you anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we know you're not the right man, but it's better than no man. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they shipped me off to Sutton Coalfield for three days to go through another series of processes and tests that ultimately then lead you towards a final conversation with um, an individual where he sat across a desk about, here's four books of all the jobs in the army that are available that you can choose from. Right. What would you like? And then you go, oh, I want this one. Yeah. And this chap on the other side goes, uh, oh, I'm sorry, we're, we're full up. Everybody we wants to be a mechanic. <laughs> we, we don't need any vehicle mechanics. And I went, oh, okay. I said, I'll be going then. He said, well, no, no, no. He said, there's all these other jobs. What else are you interested in? And I said, well, he said, well, what were you good at school at? And I said, oh, I, I won a prize for draftsmen, you know, for technical drawing. And he said, oh, Royal Engineers. They have draftspeople. Would you be interested in that? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, that was quite interesting. He said, well, oh, sorry, we're full up. We haven't got any of those. <laughs> he said, oh, I said, well, what else is there? And he said, well, have you ever looked at the Royal Signals? And I said, oh, what do they do? So he described what the Royal Signals does. And he said, yeah, here's some interesting things. And he showed what me. What do the Royal Signals do? Well, at that um, point, their fundamental job is to 
suppose, you know, provide communication around the globe. Global communication was arguably the royal signals. But within that band of royal signals, there's, let me take one step back, there's sort of three elements to the army. And that was, there's the teeth arm and there's the support arm. Yeah. And the teeth arm are all those that close and fight with the enemy. So they're your tankies, they're your infantry, um, you know, those are the people who are there. Then you've got your support arms, which is the Royal Engineers, Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers, or everything that goes behind them, part of that tail. Yeah. So supposedly for every bayonet that you'd put in the field, you'd have typically three individuals supporting that one way or another. That's the mechanics. Right. And the Royal Signals fitted into that support arm. They were there to support communication on the battlefield for um, all of the other environments. Slightly confused because within infantry battalions you'd have a signaller, so you would have <laughs> embedded signallers. The man who had the flags originally that would wave around and exactly. tell you what's going on. So they would have their own capabilities within that, but you'd, as you group people together, whether it be as a regiment, then you'd have a regiment, then as a corps or as an armoured group, whatever it might be, the bigger the units became, yeah. you ended up with more of the support arm that would come in. And it was called an all-arms battle group that you would typically have all these elements. Anyway, so the Royal Signals, communicators. But within that, you had people who repaired the equipment, you had people who operated the equipment, you had people who deployed the equipment. You know, nobody right. designed the equipment. Nobody designed nobody it. Nobody designed it. No, no job for that. None at all. <laughs> it uh, just magically appeared and exactly. people had to fix it. <laughs> and the, uh, so I ended up sitting there and coming out with him going, oh, right, you're going to be a radio technician. Right. And I said, fantastic. But it was a fascinating piece that I looked at when I came out of that interview conversation and chatted with some of the other guys there, about 200 of us. And it, and it, was, a, 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 it was an early lesson in quota management. Right. The chap who was sat across the desk... Had to get so many people into these into other roles, the, yeah. And he was sat there in his uniform, wearing a beret, with, guess what, a Royal Signals cat badge. <laughs> He's like, we need more of you guys. He was steering to meet his quota yeah. of filling the Royal Signals. He was very smart about it, though. He got you, though. He definitely got me. He <laughs> got no, me. no, we've got no engineers, we've got no mechanics. <laughs> The guy in the next office who was in the Royal Engineers, we've got no signalers, you have to be an engineer. <laughs> so for any, uh, whether that process still exists or not, I don't know, but uh, I don't I know. Know they're still recruiting it. I have no connection to the military. Because of my family background being Jehovah's Witnesses, they're all abstinent from military. Yeah. So there's no real connection to it at all. So I don't know anything about how the military works. Yeah. So I'm very naive to most of it, which is why I try and ask questions when I get the opportunity to. Yeah. Um, but I have one military relating story, and that's about my brother. And he joined the French Foreign Legion. Oh. So he wanted to go in the military, but his eyesight's not great. Yeah. And it was a, beyond their parameters of acceptance. So he couldn't join the military or the RAF or any of them. Um, so he found out that the, the Legion will accept people with worse eyesight <laughs> um, and he was, I think he was 19 at the time so my partner and I were going to Paris for a romantic weekend away yeah. and because my brother is 19 and has never travelled by himself or anything like that we said well get yourself a Eurotunnel ticket we'll get you to the gates because the way that it works is you turn up <laughs> and then they take your passport and your mobile phone and 50 euros I think it was yeah. and they put you through basic and then um once you pass basic, you get your phone back so that you can tell all your family that you're still alive, basically. So we were like, we'll get you to 
there because we're actual adults who know how to travel. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's it. We'll say our goodbye and see you in, I think it was three months is the, yeah. the amount of time it takes. So we did the usual thing of going to Paris on a romantic weekend with my brother in tow. <laughs> Got him to the barracks, said the goodbyes, had a bit of a, an emotional well I'll see you soon I hope it all goes okay and that was it we carried on with our weekend in Paris so the next day we're having dinner in a nice restaurant in Paris trying to make the romantic Paris trip a romantic Paris trip and my phone rings it's my brother I was like I thought you weren't supposed to have your phone back for three months I've been kicked out (laughs) less than 24 hours I'll tell you when I see you where are you I sent him our location. We met up at a McDonald's just around the corner. So that, I was like, I'm guessing you're going to need something easy. He's like, I'm starving. <laughs> I was like, I'll get you a cheeseburger and a cup of coffee. And you can tell me what's happened. And what had happened is he was having his breakfast. And my brother's five foot seven. Skinny kid. A lot of passion, a lot of power. Got that like red mist switch where it, it's quite difficult to manage and I've tried and failed several times as this big brother who was working in secure psychiatric hospitals and is better prepared than most for a red switch yeah and um he's having having his breakfast there's a big Polish guy sat opposite him proper ex-military big guy and for breakfast you get a bowl of porridge and a bit of French stick like the bare minimum to survive a day and the big Polish guy reaches over to my brother and takes his bread. He's like, you're only a little kid. I need the food more than you. <laughs> and my brother's not scared to stand up for himself. He's like, no, it's my bread. Give it back. And the Polish guy just clocks him. Just straight over the table, just clocks him, which then obviously tricks that switch. And he, over the table, takes this guy to the floor, caught him off guard and just absolutely wailing on him. And their commanding officer walks in, sees this commotion. Like, What's going on? He's like, oh, you can F off as well. This isn't enough. It gets absolutely <laughs> outraged everybody. It got kicked out. And I said, you got kicked oh, out for dear. disrespecting your commanding officer, yeah, not for fighting. Not for fighting. They expect the fight. Absolutely. They don't expect the disrespect. Absolutely. And he, he sits there and he tells us this whole story. And he reaches into his pocket and pulls out this bit of French stick. He went, yeah, but I got the bread back. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's the most expensive piece of bread you'll ever buy. Oh, dear. So I we had two days trying to find him hostels so that he could get a return ticket back home and go back to my parents' house. Yeah. I don't think he... Um, depends on what he was looking for in his life, but... Um, I think he was looking for purpose. purpose. I think more than anything, yeah. he was looking for a place to fit. And therein lies a, you know, yeah. a salutary lesson for everybody. And just coming back, because we digressed from the question about uh, Mission Motorsport and how you get involved in that... And therein lies the challenge for, you know, the environment of the military coming out of the military for people who then struggled to find their sense of purpose. Yeah. And it was a question I was asked lots of time. How could you come out of the military where you were doing a fundamentally a vocational job, you know, with huge amounts of purpose and huge amounts of things? Why are you coming to do sales? How do you satisfy your desire? Yeah. And going, well, firstly, I'm learning in this environment and it's a fast-paced environment. So there is that element. I said, but, you know, it, it's a sort of team sport. I said, so that also would. And if I really wanted to try and think through to what's the connection, I said, well, I'm sort of selling technology back to defence in a lot of environments. So I'd like to be selling them the best technology that's available for the right purpose of what they're trying to achieve. I said, yeah. so in an indirect way, I could justify it. You're but, still connected to furthering the... Yeah. thing that you were once vocationally working for. But back to your point earlier about you sort of situate something for your 
mindset about yeah. how you just self-justify what it is. But, you know, that loss of sense of purpose for a lot of military people coming out, yeah. you know, is the thing that, you know, James and the Mission Motorsport team and not that. I mean, there's possibly more military charities, so 2,000 military charities in the UK, yeah. all set up, all trying to help um, people who have been, whether it be because they've been exposed or, you know, to, you know, traumatic experiences or or not, or just that indoctrination, I'll call it that, yeah, indoctrination yeah. within the military. Then, of course, Correct. Yeah. It, uh, it becomes a challenge and then it becomes, you know, you lose your way. So uh, helping uh, Jim in Mission Motorsport, I came across him um, possibly about, must have been about eight years ago, um, and from leaving after the first four or five years of being in civilian, I very quickly found myself, you know, achieving good outcomes, you know, life was going very well, helping, um, you know, the family and everything else going along. I was involved in scouting, you know, you have kids come along, so you sort of want to give them a lot of what you have had, so yeah, scouts yeah. was a big thing, cubs and all that. Um, and then... Um, must have been mid 2000s I ended up um, setting up or um, helping a chap set up a um, a charity then which was fundamentally about fundraising for something called Blesma which is British Limbless Ex-Servicemen's Association right. so that's a very old um, charity but it had um, it's possibly not the most catchy of titles so they struggled to actually attract because you guys them. are really good with your acronyms so that's surprising <laughs> like, Drops was specifically made for an acronym exactly I thought you'd have been better at the acronym there you would like to think so you could have gone with like legs gone or something and made something match all the there you bit. go <laughs> and of course something that had captured the UK mind at that time was Help for Heroes yeah. that had got that idea and it was attracting huge amounts of oh, so you know, know, money you chuck a prince involved with it all and it's amazing how many people get on board away it goes yeah. so we were there trying to sort of um you know do some uh relatively simple actually it's a fascinating story and i will say um sadly it's got a very sad tinge to it because only um literally just before christmas the um founder uh, tao lambert passed away oh that's, that's really young lad so stage four cats are really really yeah. sad anyway we we had um worked together um me on the corporate world helping him organize with a whole bunch of other military people some charitable donations that grew up to become soldiering on which was effectively trying to take you know ex- you know exemplar stories of people who were in charitable work helping people um through recovery helping them into sense of purpose and mission mode sport was one of those charities that came through the door as people saying oh look these guys over here are doing great stuff yeah so that was a little bit like the oscars and it would be a black tie dinner in london with celebrities and all the rest of it that we'd be putting people on a pedestal just go well oh, done you fantastic so that's how i came across jim but i i was a you know director and trustee of what was soldiering on for um, about 10 years generating corporate sponsorship so i would bring corporate yeah. money from NetApp as it was at the time into that to you know sponsor awards and what have you so i'd i'd been in that world quite a time when i saw jim's stuff saw what he was doing i went that's fantastic and Oh, and motorsport. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And that all sort of just fell into place and, you know, I've been been in the background there just 
helping and doing what you can to yeah, yeah. You know, provide a bit of support. So it's it's great. And the more people I encounter that have been connected to what Jim does, the, the more of a community is really around that. And like with uh, Martin from Classic Performance Engineering, yep. when you said, oh, do you want to come down to Donington or photograph the A386s together? Oh, perfect. Turn up with Martin's there. I was like, of course Martin's here, because why wouldn't he be? And then Aston, who is the uh, chief mechanic for Mission Motorsport, he's there. It's like, okay, so this is a lot more interconnected than you've got a couple of 86s. It's actually just <laughs> all the mates are together in a different set of cars this time. Um, and it is brilliant, and it really speaks to what I try and capture yeah. within the automotive world of this sense of connection and community and let's try and use that to help each other out a bit more yeah. and it doesn't have to have the pressures that a lot of people put on it same yeah. with um talking about things like ptsd and trauma and stuff like that there's a huge weight connected to those things yeah and it, they are very heavy subjects and people carry a real burden with it but that doesn't mean that we can't talk about them casually and we can't make them a normal thing to discuss it's just learning how to be mature about that conversation that is the difficult part and a lot of people don't seem to understand the nuance to that bit and there's people that talk quite openly about mental health but they don't do it in a mature way and then that becomes infantilized and discredited because it seems like a child crying for help rather than a grown-up going through an emotional array and trying to understand it and communicate that and it's a real hard skill to learn and i have quite often struggled to put it into the right words yeah because it's hard to say these things without doing a disservice to people that are in a bad place yeah because yeah. when you're in a bad place, you're not thinking about how you're Absolutely. presenting. You're just in a bad place and yeah. anything is better than nothing. Yeah. And it's a real hard balance to, to walk the line of. And I think it's very similar with people that have experienced like PTSD, especially yeah. from military service. It's, well, I don't want to be seen to be just crying about it. Yeah, yeah. People won't respect me for that. It's like, well, no, I'd rather you cried about it and learned how to communicate your emotions yeah. through that experience than didn't say anything and end up going, nobody exactly. cares, I'm just going to disappear. Exactly. And it's a real hard balancing act. It's a real hard thing to try and explain and to in some way educate people about because people will see the cry for help and if it doesn't, if that one cry for help doesn't fix the problem, people will not give it a second chance. Yeah. Or you were just crying for attention last time. Yeah. So, well, no... This person's going through an emotional distress and in the process of going through emotional distress you learn how to communicate your emotions better but it's not a quick fix and it's not an immediate thing. And while you're in that place you're not in a rational mindset anyway. And it's it's, it's something that I find really challenging in the position that I am in trying to educate and encourage. And in that point about the education, the the awareness, the self-awareness aspect for not only the person who's trying to help the individual, but for the individual themselves. Yeah. Because that, you mentioned, you know, being in a bad place with PTSD. Actually, there's, funnily enough, you can be in a place that is just delightful with PTSD. <laughs> and, and again, PTSD gets a, a sort of a very broad church view, but actually within that element, yeah. you know, there are so many different things. I mean, my suffering was, uh, was a hypermanic um, episode. Uh, I spent four months in Woolwich Hospital, you know, trying to get better. Yeah. And the time, you know, that was in the 90s. Uh, to, yeah, 1989. Uh, 90. 
Yes, that's right. Yes, and that had come about, you know, largely through lots of incidents that build up, and it's described quite well in the mental health uh, first aiders thing that fundamentally a cup is filling up, and if you're not actually releasing a lot of that pressure, then too many life incidents cause your cup to overflow. And that was my scenario after two years of bomb disposal in Northern Ireland, uh, a year of intensive training in Sandhurst. I was then in um, Ashchurch for a year. I was the only single living in officer. There was nobody else. So all of a sudden that decompression occurred Mm. where I was, you know, fairly isolated in a way. Um, And that was, you know, a process that you desperately struggle to work out yeah now I understand and it's it's terribly difficult I Um, struggle now to talk about it yeah and I would be surprised if it wasn't something hard to talk about yeah Um, and the experience especially in 1990 things aren't quite as well understood as they are now totally so I imagine when you were in that situation where it's four months in hospital it's not the same as four months in hospital is now. It's probably a little bit more, or a little bit less compassionate, maybe. And it's um, no, to be fair, I think I was very fortunate right. compared to the treatment that you might get now, in so much that um, a lot of that treatment that I had back then was potentially more likely to have been treated, if I was a civilian, would have been treated in the community. Right, okay. You know, I've got other experiences of, you know, um, friends and family members where they're just not getting the same level of intensive support that I got. Yeah. But you sort of back to that point about PTSD is such a broad thing. Actually, within that, and even within, you know, within my family, I can say these are different yeah. um, medical situations that we're in where one of my, you know, sisters might be in a menopausal situation dealing with stuff yeah, yeah. but the symptoms look very similar yeah. that you're in a manic episode or whatever it might be and just going back to that point about you think it's a dark place actually a hypermanic place is an elated place yeah, yeah. you know and i do just remember that whole god delusion yeah. of what i'm doing is well it's <laughs> yeah yeah it's, <clears throat> it's so intrinsic to different people how it works isn't it and, and and that was we were talking earlier about the chemical aspects or behavioural aspects, yeah. And that chemical thing that you just don't understand what your body is doing fundamentally, yeah. And it's a chemical imbalance that's creating it that can be treated. But you know, back in 1990, they didn't they didn't know it was an experimental process of whatever drug they were giving yeah, well, to you. Try one of these if that exactly. helps. It's the right one. Exactly. It, well, it's very interesting how our brain can alter our entire reality just with a bit of a chemical adjustment suggestions you know that whole thing and some of the training that we went through which were all designed to expose you to you know the way the brain operates Mm. typically under you know sleep deprivation or you know into um you know specific things and you'll get lots of examples of that on you know the full james bond exactly and (laughs) and the um, sas stuff you know and all the rest of it so you get a good glimpse of that type of thing and it's done to try and get you into that space where you can continue to make decisions but fundamentally as we were talking earlier you can get to a point where you just cannot operate your brain won't allow you to operate sensibly yeah. so that conversation but that 
chemical and behavioural thing, and I'm still learning, listening to well, we you. Were, so to give context, we were chatting about ADHD and yeah. how that is inherently a dysregulation of dopamine. Mm. And dopamine is the chemical that your brain creates that basically makes you happy. And for someone with ADHD, they cannot regulate it in the like usual way. And it means that if there's something that isn't making you happy, your brain will disengage entirely and you it's almost physically impossible to do. Um, and I find it a lot if I've got a task that I've done several times before and it's not very engaging and it's very boring, my brain won't actively engage with it and I struggle to just do anything. So I really struggle with like emails or repetitive tasks that I've done before that isn't something brand new and exciting so when i'm putting event details out that are recurring events <laughs> i have to do it once a month every month rather than sitting and going through for a whole day because after the first hour i'll just stop yeah. and then i've lost a whole day because my brain won't then get back into something yeah and that's one of the like they're kind of like the hidden challenges of adhd because as a functioning society and as a functioning adult in a, a like typical role you have to do a lot of boring stuff. Yeah. And it's learning how to live with that that's the challenge. Yeah. So one of the things that helps with ADHD in particular is stimulus. Mm-hmm. So caffeine is almost like a self-medicating approach <laughs> to ADHD, where you find a lot of people with ADHD drink a lot of coffee. Yeah. Because the, the caffeine is enough to kind of get the dopamine flowing yeah. and get you to just do what normal people can normally do a neurotypical person doesn't have this dysregulation of dopamine so when they're approaching a task they know that they just need to get the task done Mm -hmm. and then they can move on whereas a person with ADHD approaching a task if it doesn't give them any dopamine it's almost impossible to start and caffeine helps give them dopamine or helps their brain to release the dopamine and you know what's so fascinating about that is that the military environment has a systemic um, way of creating a rotation of job. So my entire 20 years was never doing the same job twice. Right. I'd have two to three years in a posting. And whilst the fundamental, I was trained as a radio telegraphist in the end, I didn't end up becoming that radio technician for some other reasons. (laughs) Um, That was full and a different thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, no, I ended up in a, sitting in a completely blacked out room with a chap giving me a, uh, a colourblind and colour perception test right. with what's something called a magic lantern. And it fundamentally puts up a pinpricks of light of uh, white, uh, white, red and green, white, red and green. Yeah. And you just have to call out what colours. And I couldn't see the difference between white and green. Because you can be red, green, colourblind, can't you? Correct. Yeah. And, I, well, it, and it's um, colour perception. They, wires... You kind of need to know the different colours. <laughs> and as a radio technician, you'd have 32 pairs, 64 wires to yeah. put in. But then, you know, a bit like the scale electric thing and all the rest of it, you know, I do electrical work and I can. I, I, you know, my brain can see the difference and I do work things out, but there is still a colour perception, so I'm CP2 graded, right. which is good enough to allow me to get a race licence, so that's okay. So I <laughs> You can see the, the difference between green and yellow flags. So Correct. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a critical thing. Yeah. But that conversation, radio telegraphist, but 
I never did the same job twice. Yeah. And it was interesting, you know, again, listening to you talk about that whole repetitive aspect. I see so much of what I think, how do I focus for so long? How do I drive these things? Why is it that I can achieve these outcomes when people keep saying, I don't know about that. Well, are you sure? Can you achieve that? Yeah, yeah. And Race of Remembrance, you know, two years ago when I set down with Martin and uh, a chum, Mike, and uh, a bunch of people, and I said, yeah, come on, let's go do the Race of Remembrance. And they went, yeah, but it's only two months away. Yeah, yeah but we'll give somebody a, you know, we'll give a beneficiary of Mission Motorsport a seat in the car. We'll put the car in. I'll put some novices in there, but you haven't got your race. Yeah, yeah, we'll get, we'll get it all sorted. Yeah, yeah. And we literally did. So we're turning up for, a, you know, a 55-car grid, as it was, back at the little MX-5 from Mission Motorsport, and there we are yeah. up there racing and people coming out going, wow. And again, you know, one of the big stimuluses there was bringing a... Um, a boss that I um, worked for in Civvy Street who had been diagnosed terminal cancer. Right. And I was there trying to give him, you know, here's a milestone. Let's go and do thing it. That's going to be a big positive for him. And that was a, you know, another great experience for him and how we sort of come around and what we ended up doing, driving, you know, the little MX-5, supporting Macmillan cancer and neuroendocrine cancer, which was the particular diagnosis that he had um you know and raising a bunch of money at the same time of giving you know a uh, naval chap who had suffered with testicular cancer um you know and had been um, laid out all a part of that teamwork and that you know just solidified so that's how martin by the way ended up in the car because <laughs> yeah, yeah. i had sort of got to know martin through classic performance and said oh you know what you're doing yeah, he was the yeah. only one on the team who actually had had a licence before. He'd been around a racetrack properly in a racing environment. So he said, you come along because we need somebody like you with us. And Mike Spence, who had, uh, who's a friend out of the village, um, you know, used to be a mechanic on Mini Miglers and what have you. So that was it. That was our, our experience, plus Aston from the garage and yeah. the rest of it. But uh, And again, you sort of create that intensive period of getting people ready two months from no odds test no license to doing a 12-hour endurance race and completing it see that's the time frame that my brain would love yeah because it's intense for a it's like it's all exciting and interesting and new all in a really crammed inside exactly and uh, one of the the byproducts of adhd is when you're in an intense situation you can kind of just move at a normal pace. Your brain is is quite happy in that environment because there's so much stimulus. It's like, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm in a great place. And it's been a real interesting thing to learn about because working in the hospitals and going through some kind of personal stuff prior to that, it's always quite intense. And I was people go, how do you get through it? I'm like, I didn't find it that hard. I just seem to just work in that environment really well. I can work in chaos really well. And uh, the most recent example, we went to Naples, which is where I met the, the guy with the Alpha and went for yeah, yeah, yeah. The first day we went into the city, um, it was chucking it down with rain. It's Naples, busy. We were trying to get to um, oh, the catacombs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which we had no idea where they were. We've never been. So my other half and her family are just in a bit of a panic. They're like, it's chucking it down with rain. We don't know where the bus is that we need. We don't know where this, uh, this is. 
And I had my camera and I was just like, this is great, I'm loving it. Just taking photos of all the chaos and all the manic people everywhere and everything's narrow and there's cars everywhere. I was like, I'm having a really lovely day. And they're like, we hate today. This is the worst day of the holiday. And when it's day one, I was like, I I could just do this all day. Like I'll happily stand at this bus stop getting soaked, taking photos of cars and watching this mayhem. And as I've learned more, it's a thing with ADHD where that overstimulus of stuff... It just keeps your brain, so, yeah. just keeps going and going and going. So you listen to stories of racing drivers, you yeah. know, and I've now experienced that racing, you know, where the anxiety, all the prep before you get in the car, sat there on the grid, ready to go. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, this Clarity. amazing calm yeah. and the whole thing. You're literally, you know, door handle racing, 55 cars, you know, novices across the thing. Anything could happen. Yeah. And yet you're in complete tranquility. And you listen to people, you know, um, Nigel Mansell, he would sing nursery rhymes over the radio as he's going (laughs) around, you know, at 180 miles an hour or whatever he's doing. And you hear that so often, Jensen Button, similar, you know, just have that ability to To slow the pace down. Fabulous. Yeah, and (laughs) I went around Blyton recently and a friend who's a race instructor was like, oh, I'm thinking of getting an 86 for one of my instructor cars, can I jump in with you? And we came around the chicane at Blyton and the back end went. <laughs> Basically, I'd put too much throttle in with too much steering and just the back went because I'd turned everything off. I was like, well, turn everything off. And while we're going, I was like, well, this isn't going very well, is it? I'm very sorry. <laughs> like, just, we're in a spin and I'm just like, I'm sorry about this. It's such a, a rookie mistake. I'm very apologetic. He's like, Most people absolutely brick themselves and like scream and you're yeah, just yeah. apologising while braking and counter-steering it. I'm really sorry for messing up this experience for you. Oh, but we just did like a 90 degree and then just stopped yeah. and carried on again. And then the car that was behind us two corners later pirouetted off into the distance because it was down. <laughs> I thought, oh, I didn't go as bad as that, did it? <laughs> Where was that? Donington? Uh, Blyton. Oh, Blyton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. okay. Um, which I've driven twice, I drove Blyton twice in 2020. I've never driven okay. it before and I drove it twice in 23. And that was on a Frank track day, was it? No. The second one was, the okay. first one was a, a friend who has a Mazda 2 racing car. Okay, yeah. They were there for like just a club sport day. yeah. yeah. And I got a text saying, I promised you two years ago we'll go in this car at some point. Yeah. It's upsetting me that I've not given you the opportunities. I'm not doing this because I'm your friend. It's because I owe you a go in this car. So I went and had a go in the car. And that was a lot of fun. And, and, that, and again, it's interesting when you get to that position of how do you get into that racing environment. Yeah. My first experience was, you know, after leaving the forces, I'd had no experience at all of that. After leaving the forces, corporate day out, you know, little reward, off we went to Jonathan Palmer Motorsport and I'm chucked into that environment. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. And then well, ended more up... more of this. Well, more of this. Yeah. And have, coming away from having ride all those, the one car that I absolutely fell in love with was a Caterham. And Charlie Butler Henderson was the instructor in there at the time, Vicky's brother. And uh, he you know, came out of that and went, this is fantastic. And he said, all oh, right, here's all the information where you need to go to get into the Caterham Academy and the rest of it. Oh, brilliant. I never did go into the Academy, by the way, but I did just fall in love with... Caterhams and I ended up going back and that always to Jonathan Palmer over the years I've done far too many of them but they were a fabulous environment and then eventually my first toy car yeah. that car that you can have that it doesn't matter if it's broken because tomorrow I've got to go to work in this other car yeah, yeah the first experience that was a Caterham and that's you know given me a community of mates and we'll all be out there at Frank's track day for example yeah, yeah. just going around and that's just 
a beautiful to your point I've about driven a catering before i really would like to have a go in one properly they are very flattering <laughs> when they're set up correctly yeah i've been in some pretty awful set up caterums that will chuck you off <laughs> at a moment's notice right just to they're one of the most authentic ways to motorsport aren't they perfectly balanced you yeah. know, all the weight is central you can see the input in the steering you've got everything is just raw but it's a wonderful wonderful car on a track yeah just to be able to be in complete control yeah yeah but as long as it's set up neutral just have it as neutral doesn't need anything else neutral car away you go and there's a group of about six of us who go around each year just thrashing around <laughs> tracks on so mostly with lotus on track yeah. Another lovely chap, another Paul, um, Paul Golding, who runs Lotus on Track, huge supporter of Mission Motorsport. You know, he's helped us enormously. They've done enormously. good together, haven't Correct. they? Correct. And he did that Donington. So the fact oh, that, that we had yes, it was. those two 86s were on it, actually that was a Lotus on Track day where yeah. he was very kind enough to allow us to come Because there was the gentleman a couple that. of garages down in a, a lease. That's it. But it had a really high roll cage. I said, like, this guy's going to be about eight foot tall. And I met him, and he was my height. I said, why is your roll cage so high? He went, I've got really short legs and a really long body. I was like, oh, fair enough. And then he sat down, and his head was like right up to the top of the, um, the windscreen. I was like, he does have a really long body, doesn't he? <laughs> his seat's all the way forward, but he's really high up. Um, yeah, I, I forgot that was a Lotus on track day. Um, yeah, no, it's really good guy. But uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. No, and, and as always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so we're probably going to finish off by playing with some scale electrics because we've got the Goodwood replica track downstairs in Haggerty's clubhouse. Yep. So thank you for letting us sit in here, Haggerty, if any of you are listening. And we won't say who said we could in case we weren't supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Paul. No, I think, you know, the George, who has... Um, you know with what's going on obviously this is will be after will be post, it but, yeah you know hopefully the scramble the first scramble of 2024 which is seeing the scale electric um inspired goodwood that you know has been created fundamentally to attract awareness to mission motorsport it's fundamentally but sort of goes back to what we were talking about that sort of you know focus and tension and adhd type yeah. approach was you know, people said, wow, you must be mad creating a thing that big. And it's like, <laughs> and you're going to make it mobile as well. Oh, yeah, we need to go and take yeah, it wherever Mission Motorsport will need it. It's so, huge. That's what it's it is. basically a 132 scale Goodwood to match the 132 scale cars. Um, it's fantastic. And the the inside line of the the tracking, where the metal strips are for the contact points, it goes to the inside edge of the track. So you've got racing line moments. And because it's digital, you can change lanes. So if you if you use the inside racing line bit, the wheels actually go on the faux grass and it kind of slows you down. So you have to change to the outside lane before the corner so that you can carry. So it's brilliant. I have really enjoyed playing with it this afternoon because most people's experience of scale electrics growing up is the original scale electrics where it's just who can keep the car on the track the longest. Whereas it's advanced so much that it's now... Oh, I need to change lanes before this corner so that I get the better driving line to keep speed and then change back for the next bit. And then it's so much closer to actual motorsport now because of all the advancements they've made and being able to change lanes and different cars and this, that and the other. It's brilliant. I'm and like so many of these hobbies that 
taken to extreme. Yeah. Um, you know, from a toy that's fundamental. Um, there is a whole world of middle-aged men and women who have, you know, now got, you know, fuel simulation, tyre wear simulation, weather simulation, yeah. incident simulation, everything controlled <laughs> down to thousandth of a second. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, people like Ross Braun, you know, would say that he learned an awful lot about chassis setup from his slot car experience. You know, yeah, that yeah. spent an awful lot of things. I mean, listening to Adrian Newey's um, autobiography, which is fascinating, where, you know, he was talking about a whole bunch of the things he learned fundamentally from go-karts back in the uh, back in as a child. Um, and that's pretty much what you get with this as well. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. Same sort it's of thing. really, really good. But uh, this has been a great chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will start recording now. Okay. Okay.